Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. And I got to tell you something, people. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a weird story how I got my guests today. Years ago when I did stand-up, I used to work in South Jersey and the Philadelphia area with a comic named Vinny D'Angelo. And Vinny was a guy that uh, he had these, like, a, a Dutch boy haircut, but it was dark black hair and a beard. And I swear to God, if he had, like, if he had shaved his beard, I still think he would have looked like a little kid. He just had this appearance. And he used to always go on, phone, on stage with a, a cell phone, but it was when cell phones were really big. And I remember one time I worked with him at the Mount Laurel Comedy Cabaret. And he sat there and it was my mom's birthday. And he actually pulled the phone out and he called my mom. And I thought that was really cool. Well, I was hanging out with Vinny one time after a show. And it was a time where I was trying to get into jazz music. And he had told me, you know, he had told me about the movie Round Midnight with Dexter Gordon. And uh, Vinny, we were in his car. And, and Vinny was a little, was, was a fan of the marijuana. I don't think I smoked back then. I, I think I gave it up because I smoked some weird stuff in college. But I remember hanging out and he had told me about this musician that he really liked. And I don't know if he met him in New York. We'll find out today. But it turns out years later, when I was going back and forth, about four years ago, when I was going back and forth back east, I was doing comedy gigs again. And Vinny D'Angelo came up. And this gentleman's name came to my mind. And I looked him up. I looked him up on Facebook. Turns out he went to my college. After reading his bio, I think he only went for a year or two. But um, I guess it's John Coliani. How you doing, John? Steve, how are you? Thanks for having me. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, it's funny, because that's how I, I knew you from Vinny D'Angelo. How did you know Vinny? Vinny uh, was a, a very good friend of my ex-wife. In fact, uh, around, before we were married, uh, going this is going back to about 86, she introduced me to him, and uh, we became fast friends. I saw his act at a comedy club in uh, New Jersey near Philly. You might remember which one that might have been. Yeah, probably the Hyatt in Cherry uh, Hill. I think it was the Hyatt, actually, yeah. And um, there was a comic named Wid, W-I-D. Yeah, the legendary Wid. Right, he was on the bill, and he was sort of... Uh, Vinny was either a mentor to him or vice versa. And anyway... Um, my ex-wife, whose name is Denise, she's a South Jersey girl, and uh, we're still in touch and all that, but uh, she was very much on the uh, art scene as a fan and stuff like that, and she loved comedy. So she introduced me to Vinny, and it, as it turned out, Vinny and I, uh, after a weird introduction, uh, we didn't really hit it off the very first couple of times we hung out. We found so much common ground, and... Uh, shared uh, sense of humor and things like that, that we we became great friends after a while. And then as it turned out, we had more mutual friends, uh, I found out, over time. And I was very sad to hear that he had passed away. Yeah, it was, I, I had heard about it because I wasn't back east, and it's just weird because, you know, when you, when you grow up doing comedy with these people, and, and he was an older comic to us younger guys, but you still knew him and you respected him. You weren't really tight with him, but it was just weird when that happened. Yeah. So yeah. So now you, first of all, you were just in London. What, what was going on in London? London. I was uh, in the UK, not just London, but kind of all over England, for uh, three weeks of gigs. Um, I, I was doing some uh, small jazz festivals, concerts, and... Uh, residency at a jazz club in London, and uh, I frequently play overseas, as do most uh, jazz players who are somewhat established. Now, you started, when did you start playing the piano? You were very young. I know you lived in the D.C. area, and didn't you go to a club and see somebody that turned you onto it, or how did you start this whole path? Because, you, you know, you've been a lifelong musician, which is great. I mean, a lot of people can't say that, and a lot of people can't do what they love for their whole life without taking a break. How did this whole path start, and, you know, to your just, and even being called Johnny Chops? How did, how did that all start out? Yeah, a good question. Uh, the very beginning of my uh, musical journey up to now seems like the very beginning is uh, a moment ago, less than a moment ago, but... Uh, uh, as a preteen, I discovered my parents' record collection, as did a lot of kids who got into 
jazz and Broadway and big band music and all related genres. And that was in the 70s. Um, so I was raiding my mother and dad's LP collection and uh, fell in love with, uh, first of all, the sounds of the big bands. And then uh, moving on, I, uh, I took piano lessons, showed some proficiency, and then I got pretty good around mid-teens good enough to play uh, some professional engagements, and I've been working as a musician ever since. So, uh, you know, that's 30-some, 37 years, something like that. So what was it like playing gigs when you're in high school? Because it's it's a total different thing than sitting in the cafeteria and then playing, you know, some gigs. What is that like, and were you intimidated, or did you have that... When we're younger, so many of us have no fear that we just do it. I mean, it must have been sort of overwhelming because you're a teen. Right. At first, it was extremely overwhelming because I'd be jamming with people who were in their 20s and 30s and older, and some of them quite famous. And, uh, but what started out as nervousness and fear turned into a sort of cockiness as I discovered I could hold my own maybe a little too much at that time and that's that you know as, a, as all young people will they uh, they might show a trait that will calm down a little bit uh, as they mature and that was the case with me so I think a little bit of cockiness might have come through from say 18 to 22 and then it sort of simmered down <laughs> now, now when after you, that but when- when you were uh, playing in, in high school when you are teen, did you know this would be your life path? I mean, did you sit there and say, I don't want to do anything else. This is what I'm going to do. Or were you thinking, this is fun. I might do something else. I mean, what is the progression of a musician, especially the piano? Because, you know, there's so many different avenues you can play. And, I mean, what was your, at 17, you know, were you saying, okay, jazz pianist. That's what I'm going to be for the rest of my life? Another excellent question. Uh, Steve, I was thinking at that time, I, I love this, I love the, um, the excitement that it generates, I love the music, I love being part of the music community, but I don't see how I could possibly uh, become a professional and actually get paid for doing this. It just seemed a remote possibility. I, I thought I was pretty good, but I didn't think I was good enough to actually go out and tour or play for... I mean, I would never have dreamed in a million years that I would have the skill, the proficiency, the chops to accompany somebody like Mel Torme or Lionel Hampton or Les Paul. Uh, at that time uh, that you speak of, and I think this is true for a lot of young people who go into acting and music and you might have had that experience with comedy. You think, no matter how good you are, you, you have some doubt that, uh, I mean, could I really sustain this? It doesn't seem real to you at the time. So that, that's my best answer for that. And then when I found out that people were willing to pay me and that I, I was bowled over, I thought it was a dream. I couldn't believe it. I was like, really? I'm, I'm getting paid for doing this? This is... No way. I've read about this, but I'm, I'm not uh, believing this quite yet. And then, uh, you know, it's that sort of war often time, and every, every business has its realities and ups and downs to it. But uh, the first part of it, I must say, uh, of my career was routinely filled with that kind of wonder. Now, now you moved to the Jersey Shore area, right? What year was that? Yeah, that was um, around, I was still in high school. It was around 1980. But So you were, you were playing gigs already in the D.C. area, but then you moved. Now, was that was that something where you, could you go back to D.C. and do those gigs? Or was that when you, you said, okay, I'm leaving D.C. for now and I got to focus elsewhere? No, I was, I was, you know, I was so young then that uh, the gigs I was, I was doing were, you know, like once every month or two as uh, sort of like a grand event, you know. It, it wasn't a work-a-day situation. So when I moved to Atlantic City with my folks, um, I adopted or was adopted into the music scene there by older mentoring 
musicians and entertainers in the same way that I had been sort of welcomed into that scene in Washington. So it was just moving one experience to the other. And then eventually I got uh, quite busy with it. And uh, I met Lionel Hampton backstage at the Golden Nugget. The Golden Nugget became the Hilton, and then it became... What did he become after that? I don't know. You know, it's funny. I remember uh, I remember when the Golden Nugget first opened. It was a big thing. I remember when the casinos were first opening in Atlantic City. And it was so weird for, you know, because I grew up going to Atlantic City as a kid when it was safe. And then it got bad. And then it was the casinos opened. So it was really weird when you say the Golden Nugget because I remember when that opened. Yeah, right. So this would be shortly after that. Uh, uh, around, it was 1981. And I was 17, and I had no business being there because I was too young. But I went past security, and it was New Year's Eve going into 1982. And I barged in, I put a suit on, and I went backstage. I was hanging out with musicians in Lionel Hampton's orchestra. I worked my way over to him, and I said, Hey, Hamp, I heard you're looking for a piano player. And I had no idea if he was looking for a piano player right. or not. I was, the hubris of youth, you know. And uh, it just so happened that he was. And it happened that one of the guys in the band, Paul Jeffrey, a sax player, who also worked with Thelonious Monk and Charles Bingham, had been trying to recruit me to go to uh, music school at Rutgers, where he was a jazz professor. So he was playing in the orchestra. So he saw me there and he said, Hey, Lionel, this kid, I've been trying to get him into my music program, you know, he's really a good player. So Hampton looked at me and he invited me to his apartment for an audition in New York City and a few days later I went up and uh, got the gig and that's what really started my career. I was, before you know it, I was on the road as a teenager touring all over the United States, France, Italy, Germany, Belgium, Holland, Japan, uh, and making, I guess, I think I made, I made about $60,000 a year in 82, 83, and 84. And that was a lot of money back then, especially for a kid. Oh, yeah, especially for your and, age. Uh, <laughs> it was great. And uh, I had the time of my life, as you can imagine, on the road. Um, and uh, good habits, bad habits, everything. I developed a lot as a musician, as a man. And uh, along with this, I snuck in a few semesters in Stockton, but uh, yeah. When did didn't you? Last too long. When? What years did you go there? Because I, I graduated in eighty six. That was the. Um, I had gone there. Let's say. Uh, I don't know. I guess eighty two, eighty three, uh, taking a couple of months off from the road. But I only took, you know, seven or eight courses, and I wasn't serious about it. Why did you even go? But, uh, I just. Why'd you go? You had this Why great, you had this great well, career going. I wanted, I wanted to um, sort of recharge my brain because, you know, I, and I had gone to a prep school and uh, I was used to uh, a rigorous academic uh, agenda and I felt I was getting a little lazy in the uh, brainwave department, so I signed up for some courses. And that, that's it. But, I, you know, it, it was interrupted. The gigs took priority. And I ended up not really, uh, I kind of ditched before I even started. So my career at Stockton was extremely short and uh, in, in a couple of strange little intervals. Well, you should, you should play a gig at Stockton. They should have you. I should, I should interview you live at Stockton. That's what they should, they should have that's us come. That's a good idea. They should have I'd us come down there. there. Now, now, what were you learning? I mean, just, you know, I'm thinking about the fascination of being this young age and you playing piano. And I've learned so much from different actors and, and writers and musicians on this show that a lot of times the chances happen when, you know, you're at the right place at the right time. Like you asked Lionel Hampton and this guy knew you. What were you learning on the road? I mean, just watching these masters play, did, were you sucking it up every night and just thinking, man... This is like better than any music school because I'm playing around the world. Yeah, it was actually. It was like a, a roving university, and uh, the tour bus was the campus. You know, and we'd go from town to town, staying in 
sometimes a beautiful hotel, sometimes uh, a more adventurous setting. Uh, sometimes, in those days, English wasn't as widely spoken globally. And we'd be playing sometimes uh, in a remote part of Spain or France, and it, it could seem quite far away in third world even compared to today. And then uh, that was balanced out by playing, you know, fabulous, hugely attended gigs in Amsterdam and Paris, Rome, London, you name it, you know, Tokyo. Um, and I, how could you not learn a lot? I guess I was the youngest guy in the band at all times. Uh, we used to have guys sit in with our band, like Freddie Hubbard, this Gillespie, Clark Terry, um, and uh, it, it, we would play in, in the ruins of Nice, where they have a jazz festival every year in the Côte d'Azur, which means the blue coast, the southern part of France, uh, close to Italy. Nice, France, uh, where that terrible incident took place recently. Right. But, um, uh, this is just an example, but we, we were playing outdoors in Roman ruins uh, for, you know, 15,000 people at a time uh, who paid top dollar to see us in this incredible setting. And then we go to places like Avignon and uh, uh, Nîmes and, and uh, Carcassonne and all this stuff. So, um, you know, and then we go to the the, uh, the northern part of the country, and then we go to another country. So it was a lot of zigzagging, making new friends all the time, uh, learning the rules of the road, basically. Uh, as a comedian, you can relate to that, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. But, uh, it, it, was, it was, you know, when I used to travel, it was you have to adapt to wherever you were. People get some jokes somewhere, some places they don't. <laughs> exactly, right. So, so you right. now, how long did you play with Lionel for? And then were you starting to write your own music? And when did that start happening? Right. So I was with him for three full years. And then early in 1985, I struck out on my own, and uh, uh, two very good things happened around, around then. Uh, I got signed up by Concord Records, which is uh, a major jazz label. It's part of Verve Records. And uh, Concord is the parent company for Blue Note Records, and uh, it's quite a big deal. And uh, in those days, it was uh, similarly, if not even bigger than it is now. So... Um, uh, I got signed for a recording with them, and uh, at the same time, uh, I entered the Thelonious Monk competition, which was held in D.C., and it was an international piano competition from all, the world, all over the world, and I won uh, the $5,000 cash prize in that, which helped to boost my name a little more and stuff, and then uh, a, a short time after that, I got a call from uh, Mel Torbay telling me that uh, he had been listening to my music. This is a good, you'll like this part. Now, the recording I made at Concord Records, we made it at the MGM uh, recording studio in the MGM building in Manhattan on 7th Avenue. Uh, and it was called Penny Lane Studios. It was owned by one of the Beatles. That's not there anymore. But that's where they recorded. So I recorded my album there, and it came out. And it was well-received. But uh, along the, around this time, I had a gig with Woody Allen, a great movie director-actor. I read that. He plays you, the clarinet. You, yes, you played at true. Michael's. So let me tell you all about that. Yeah, I want to so, hear this. Um, some New York buddies got me into that band as a sub for his piano player. So... Um, I did that gig for a few weeks, and um, the owner of the club, Michael's Pub, 55th Street between 2nd and 3rd Avenues uh, in Manhattan, the owner, Gil Wiest, who's related to that actress who's in a lot of Woody Allen's movies. Okay, Diane Wiest. Uh, right. Uh, he took a shine to me. He liked my music a lot. And uh, in those days, it was uh, LP and and I, I think he had a cassette. And what he did with it, with it was um, he would play it between sets on his... So, who happened to be playing in his club for a month? Mel Torme. So Mel Torme is hearing this music over and over again. He's, he was knocked out by it, which is, you know, extremely flattering. And um, 
he called me up and he said, "Kid, this is Mel Charm from from Beverly Hills. I heard your uh, your album on Concord when I was at Michael's Pub. I know you played there with Woody. Loved it. I'd like to offer you the piano position in my trio. It's not available right now, but I will call you. And sure enough, in about two years or so, uh, he called me and I joined him on road. So." Those series of things happened, and they were uh, quite rewarding to my career. Um, to sort of answer your question, and, and that's when I got more involved in writing my own music, and my own compositions and arrangements and things, when I became more of a solo performer now, after leaving uh, Mr. Hansen's uh, big band. Now, how do you go, because you, you didn't go to music school, so how do you go to... Writing music is it was it just by ear or you know because I know some people who go to school they know the whole formula and I always say there's a lot of times if I know I have musician friends there's technical and there's you know just the street savvy like how do you sit there when you when did you start learning to write music and is it when composing I mean it must be very hard because it's it's piano and you got to keep the people's attention. Well, fortunately enough. Back when I was in D.C., uh, I had a, a wonderful and very uh, advanced piano teacher named Lester Carr. And uh, Les Carr, I called him. And he was in Chevy Chase, Maryland. And uh, with him, I had a full uh, jazz piano and classical piano agenda. So I, I learned enough uh, music theory and uh, the basics of uh, classical music and uh, the fundamentals of music to have the skills to write arrangements and things like that. So I didn't have to uh, spend four years going to a conservatory to learn all that. I, I kind of already had that skill and knowledge. So um, I had, to kind of, you know, when I was back when I was going to prep school, I had three years of piano training, which uh, gave me the fundamentals to be able to do orchestration and composition and all that sort of thing. So you go out and you start putting your own, you know, you're, you're going solo. What's that like psychologically? Just because the fact that you first you've played in these, you know, with Lionel Hampton and Mel Torme, who are big names and you're going to play, like you said, the places you played in Europe were amazing. Were you ready for a, you know, just, it was going to be different for the crowds and the drawing, but what were you expecting when you went solo? Were you sitting there going, okay, it's going to take a while till I get popular, or do you think you're going to hit it right out of the gate? No, uh, it's it's a very daunting thing, because uh, having never achieved that level of fame and stardom of guys like, you know, uh, Lionel Hanson, Woody Allen, Mel Torme, Les Paul, um, I still wonder to this day how I'm going to be received by an audience. I must say that you know, I've had a lot of wonderful reception, particularly overseas. Um, people attending my gigs, whether I'm leading a big band or I'm playing a trio or doing a solo piano concert. But there have been times when, uh, as with any performer, you feel insecure because it's all about you. It's your identity. It's your choice of material. It's your presentation. You might have one day that's better than, than another. When You might have a day when you feel you hit a home run and another one you don't, and you take it out on yourself. You feel bad that as a performer you can relate to that, and um, it's surely not an easy thing, but it's all part of the fun and excitement of it. Is, uh, uh, there is a certain unpredictability and spontaneity that goes with uh, being at the helm of a jazz combo. You know, it's, uh, it's quite an exciting thing. Now, what was it like playing with Woody Allen? Because, I mean, he's such a legend, I mean, as a filmmaker, and he's so dedicated to that show. I mean, I remember they used to say he wouldn't go to the Oscars because it would have been on the, it was on the night that he plays at Michael's and he wouldn't miss that gig. Well, I mean, were you a Woody Allen fan of his movies? And if so, would that make it just different when you're playing with him because you're going, wow, this is Woody Allen? Oh, yeah, I was a massive fan. I think a lot of musicians are, partly because he chooses such excellent music for his movies. And I'm a personal friend, and have been since my teenage years, of Dick Hyman, who was the musical director for um, 
oh, I'd say at least a dozen of Woody Allen's biggest hits. Um, who did the scoring for his movies, like uh, Broadway, Danny Rose, and other pictures. And um, so I was quite familiar with, uh, I loved his humor, but I also loved his uh, relationship to humor and the way he would wind it in with musical selection. So I was a big fan. And I, I must tell you, I was nervous to work with him because I was uh, still a young guy, and I heard this guy was not an easy character to get to know. Okay. And I went there, and he had uh, he was wearing a uh, dare I say a slightly rumpled white shirt, and uh, he was dressed very nondescriptly, you know, like um, uh, I, I, I don't know, it was like. Um, a white shirt, black pants, and and maybe some hiking shoes or something like that. And he had his house keys on a little dangling from his neck on a chain. Very down to earth, normal guy. He certainly didn't get dressed up for the gig, and uh, had that sort of wild hairdo that he had in those days. And uh, I was a bit nervous because this guy, and I was even more nervous when I started to work them for two reasons. One, he was uh, the shyest guy on that stage was him because he had a certain reverence for professional musicians that would make him deferential to the point of almost, you know, barely speaking. <laughs> yeah, so he was, uh, he, he was the humble guy on stage, and that made it feel awkward for me because I didn't exactly know how to address him. You know, it wasn't a free and easy conversation. That was one reason, you know, because of his sort of shy reticence that is natural when he's not in front of the camera. The other reason I was nervous was his music almost predates what we know as jazz. He plays, uh, it's called the New Orleans Funeral and Ragtime Orchestra. And it's the kind of jazz they played for Dixieland, even. And it's great, and I love it, but I, it's not my style. So I had to uh, adapt to the, the style of that music and learn how to be effective in it. And wondering if I was doing a good job or not. Uh, I guess he liked me well enough because he kept me at least six weeks uh, showing in for his piano player. Uh, but... Um, he was hard to get to know, and we used to have, uh, the band would have a meal, uh, either before the gig started or after it ended, and Woody would never sit with us and talk for that, he would just sort of disappear. I remember one night, uh, was he still with me and maybe they were breaking up, I don't remember, no, they had a young child, they had a young child at that time, she was about six or seven, I guess. This is about 1987, 88. And I remember there was a, uh, a little, no, it was younger than that. The kid was maybe three or four. And uh, Mia Farrow came in and there, there was uh, other family members. But um, there was very little showbiz about him. He was all about music. It almost seemed to me that he was, a filmmaker, and that paid the bills, but he was really a frustrated clarinet player. He played on the Albert system clarinet, and the Albert system is an old kind of clarinet that the New Orleans players use. It's a European fingering system. It's kind of archaic. It's not used that much anymore. And players like Benny Goodman and Artie Shaw, who were more modern, played the modern uh, system, which is entirely different. So Woody was a fascinating individual, but not approachable. He wasn't uh, unkind or ungracious. Or he was always very complimentary. In fact, it meant a lot to me. He said, you know, I love the way you play, and please come back and say hello anytime. So um, I only have good things to say about him. And also, despite what you may have heard, he's an excellent clarinet player in that style. Uh, very convincing portrayer of uh, the sort of pre-Dixieland New Orleans music. So uh, all big thumbs up on everything I did with, with Woody Allen the see, first time I had with him. See, that's a great experience. 
that's good to hear. So now, now, what was it like touring with Tarme? Because he's a big name too. I mean, it's like you know. I mean, what is it like when you go into a place where you know people are there to see this person, and you know that you are going to you're going to have a pretty good set because they're to see it. I mean, that must just be a good feeling when you walk in. It must be a little easy on the if you have any pre stage jitters because you know you know he can sing a song they like and the crowd's going to be into it. Yeah, the pressure's off in that way. It's not about you selling your music to a, a tough audience. It's You already know he's going to be fabulous. It's You have to live up to his musical standard. So every show, I'm on my toes with him because his music was extremely challenging for the piano player and very uh, uh, intricately wound bound to what the singer was doing. Uh, Mel Torme, almost like a, a musical counterpoint all evening. The piano was kind of an equal partner in a Baroque sort of fashion. It is vocal. Um, in the first weeks I played with him, we played at a place that has a different name down now. Uh, this is just to give you an example of the type of gigs uh, and audiences you could uh, expect. It was called the Jupiter Theater. No, it wasn't called that then. It was called the, I think it was called the Burt Reynolds Theater. It was in Jupiter, Florida. And Burt Reynolds was the owner, and he and his wife then, Lonnie Anderson, who was, you know, who wasn't in love with her. Right. He certainly was. <laughs> He's incredible. And that was uh, near the height of her, you know, extreme uh, attractive pulchritude, you know. The they, poster, the poster years. So for the young man. <laughs> yeah, she had the poster. That so she, they're sitting in the in the front row there and watching us. And and Burt Reynolds was the owner or part owner, but they were using his name, the, the theater monkey. And they Burt Reynolds is a big passionate jazz fan, so I felt very conscious that you know here's this beautiful lady that I've loved on TV for years, and Burt Reynolds, one of my favorite actors, who is a huge jazz fan. I mean, I wanted to really be my best friend. And after the show, Torme came up to me and he said, Bert and Lonnie just came over and they said, who's that new piano player, Coliani? He's wonderful. But I love the way he plays. He made a great choice. Blah, blah, blah. I felt so good. Well, yeah, shit. Uh, you got Lonnie Anderson digging on you. Hell. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, we play for the, you know, the, the music uh, uh, snobbery cognoscenti in New York City at Carnegie Hall and have a totally different kind of audience of jazz critics, music students, and things like that. And meeting that challenge was exciting. And then we played the Hollywood Bowl. And Mel Torme would sell out the Hollywood Bowl. And our opening act when, when, uh, on one gig there was uh, Take Six. Was not yet, they weren't yet famous then. Uh, so these are some examples. And then here's another example. Uh, we were playing at the McCallum Theater. No, it wasn't that. It was the, uh, what's that big theater in Pasadena? The Ambassador Auditorium. Okay. So sitting a few feet away from my piano is uh, also at the height of her charms, Suzanne Summers. Wow. Who's a, a big jazz fan as well. And her husband, that guy with the big teeth. Uh, the commercial pitch man, you know, you remember him. Yeah. Anyway, they're watching us, and that was very inspiring. So, like, with Mel Torme, I got to meet celebrities who were not just in the music business, but also he attracted fans from uh, Hollywood films, TV. And he was, at that time, uh, starring in um, cameo roles in the comedy, uh, comedy, uh, with Harry Anderson. Yeah, Night Court. Night Court. Yeah, yeah, okay. And uh, so he was very much in the thick of TV, the TV scene, and he was hot then. He was real hot. And it was uh, the young fans he was picking up from that show was widening his, his audience nationwide. We made a, a Christmas album with the uh, Cincinnati Symphonetta for Telark, a really big label. And... Uh, Unlike most uh, jazz things that uh, an impressive number of sales might be a few thousand, 
when this thing hit the market, it, it did, the sales were over 400,000 in its first three weeks out. It was a massive hit. And, uh, so it was a very exciting time with Mel Torme and, uh, I'm just thrilled and flattered even to be selected by somebody that great. I mean, you have no idea. It, it puts pressure on you, but it's a wonderful kind of pressure. You know, Steve, it's like, uh, you, you're just like, oh, I want to do a good job for this guy, you know, and, and you really put your all into it. Uh, it was so much fun, and it was it was challenging. What's it like? I can't say enough good about that experience. Well, what was it like going into the studio with them then? Because you're so used to the live, you know, you're playing live, you got to nail the song. You, you're on a Christmas album, right? You're in a studio. What's that like? Is that when, you, when you're playing with someone live and then you go into the studio, does that make it easier or does that make it harder because you, you're not getting that feeling of the live performance? Usually harder, due in part to what you just said, the, the more sterile, uh, static environment of the recording studio playing for a microphone, but the other reason is often a, a new recording will be linked to a new production or a new project, and for that, there are new orchestrations brought in. For example, for that Christmas album, we were working with a 70-piece orchestra, and we had to learn uh, very difficult parts. Um, and not much time to learn them, but we did, and uh, so very much on our toes for that assignment. So usually a, re a new recording with a guy like Mel Torme will involve having to learn new material and, and challenging material. So it, it's difficult on two levels. It's exciting, but uh, you got to be on your toes. You have to really produce. I mean, you've got to hit the ground running. you got to be ready. And you can't be distracted, and you have to have total concentration. And yet, you still have to have a a freewheeling uh, abandon, you know, typical to a jazz performance. So it's sort of a it's almost a yogic uh, uh, stance that you have to have. You know, you have to kind of be relaxed and yet conscientious uh, simultaneously. What was it like playing with the Holly at the Hollywood Bowl? I mean, it's such you know it's such a legendary theater. And since I live out here, I mean, I've gone a few times, and it's just you know you never know you don't realize how big it is because you, you for when we live in L.A. you think okay the bowl's the same size that a Greek, but it's not. It's a lot bigger. What is that like when you're sitting there playing? Man, the Beatles plays on the stage. I mean, it must be just a, a cool feeling, especially sitting there going, God, you know, when I was at Stockton taking a volcanoes class, I didn't think I'd ever be playing at the Hollywood Bowl. Well, then you, you know, yeah, what a rush it is to be on that stage. I was first there with Lionel Hampton, uh, maybe a month after I joined his orchestra. And we had a sellout crowd. Uh, we played there at least uh, two, three times a year. And then when I was with Mel Torme, we also played there two, three times a year, also the sellout crowds. Um, and the fans in Los Angeles are really very enthusiastic in the... Uh, well dressed and attentive. Uh, it's so ideal. First of all, first of all, the acoustics are, are you know, uh, very. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Sort of epical. You know, okay. you you feel that you you the way the the notes resonate in that outdoor setting. Yet there's that shell containing it all, so that the tones don't get lost. Uh, and, and, you know, it's like being a concert hall. It's an amphitheater, but it's a very well-built amphitheater. Uh, it never changes in its look. At least it didn't on the times I played there. Uh, it was, you'd look out and you'd see, there it is. Here I am back at the Hollywood Bowl. Uh, and then the whole backstage thing was fun. Visitors would come and it would be like a party back there. Uh, I think it was probably just, uh, you know, on its own terms, inherently, uh, it's an inherently exciting venue to play in. So um, that's the word I'd use, exciting. Now, I want to get back to your solo, when your solo career, when you, when you were going solo before all the big advent of the internet and all that stuff, 
and a Craigslist. How would you find people to play with? Is jazz a very um, insular place where there's a lot of people work off recommendations? Or, I mean, how did you get a band or the people you play with, let's say a trio, how would you get guys together back then? Uh, what I would do, uh, for example, when I was a kid uh, in Atlantic City, having come, come off of Lionel Hampton's band, uh, by playing uh, in jam sessions at people's homes or perhaps uh, at a university or at a club after hours, like the Jockey Club in Atlantic City, uh, you would get to know the talents and strengths of the local players. So I selected my musicians for a demo that I made uh, while I was, uh, you know, living there. And um, that demo opened a lot of doors for me. But I found the guys on my demo and the guys to work with me in my uh, career at that time when I was doing headline gigs on my own by process of elimination, by playing in jam situations and... Uh, and then finally inviting them to play with me on a more formal basis. So we would rehearse at my parents' house. You know, uh, I had a beautiful piano and a great place to play. And uh, grow the bond of uh, uh, musicianship between us, uh, cohesiveness and uh, uh, togetherness and tightness as a band and generate a bit of a style. So that's kind of how that process works. Now, the other side of that coin is there are times when um, you might want to work with a, a more famous musician that you've always dreamed of working with that you particularly like. Uh, there was a stage player I liked who had worked in Duke Ellington's orchestra. And uh, I summoned my courage and I said, I'm going to be playing for two weeks at the, the Knickerbocker in New York City. And uh, I'd be thrilled and honored if you would play with me. Uh, I'll send you a tape of my playing so you can check me out. And he was agreeable, listened to my music, and he said, yeah, I'd love to play with you. So uh, that's another way is to kind of uh, tap an elder, you know, that you've admired for a while on the shoulder and say, uh, excuse me, sir, would you uh, would you do me the honor, you know, and... Uh, so there are different ways and different levels. Uh, it also depends on the purpose of the performance or recording that, that you're that you're part of. Like uh, you, you might have a special show or a recording session where you need a certain musician. But in finding musicians for my own band, it, they would usually be found through uh, basically the process of jamming with people. Okay. Now, now, this this is going to sound like a stupid question to you, but to me, I've always just wondered. I know, like, when musicians travel, you know, a bassist, he takes his bass, a guitarist takes his guitar. How do you, are you always playing on a different piano each night, or how does that work? Or do they take your piano? Because it's not like, even like a drum set, you know, you can put up and put down. A piano is freaking heavy. How does, how does that work? Like, when you're on tour, do you just, do they have pianos, or, and how do you acclimate? If it is, if that is what happens, how do you acclimate to a different piano every night? Very good question. Um, today, more and more, you're seeing uh, digital pianos, uh, electronic instruments. However, if you're playing at uh, any uh, jazz festival, jazz club, or jazz venue that has any kind of uh, stature, uh, it's understood that there'll be a uh, an excellent grand piano in good shape there and usually when there's a contract which is in my case about 60% of the time between me and the venue where I'm playing uh, it will stipulate that I have to have uh, you know a top name piano to play on a Baldwin or a Steinway a Bosendorf or whatever it is and it has to be tuned having said that I have encountered situations where I've had to play on lousy terrible, bad pianos, and uh, that drives some piano players absolutely berserk. I kind of just roll with it and do the best I can with what I'm given, but um, usually I'm, I'm given a very nice, very professional instrument to play on, and 
usually a university, a concert hall, a jazz club, they all have this piece of equipment on their stage, a grand piano that is tuned and maintained regularly. That's good, because I would hate to see the roadies happen to push one in and just transporting it would suck. Well, you know, if you get to be uh, an endorser, you know Oscar Peterson, the, the great Canadian jazz pianist, he used to have uh, an endorsement with Bosendorfer, and a Bosendorfer piano cost around a half a million dollars. And Bosendorfer would ship and fly uh, a, a massively long, like a nine-foot Bosendorfer to every gig that Oscar Peterson would play on tour. Uh, such was his deal. Now, that would be even better than, you know, sort of wondering what you're going to play every night. But it is sort of fun to encounter all these new instruments, even though it's sometimes a bit of an uneven experience. <laughs> right. So now, how did you get the nickname Johnny Chops? Well, okay. Uh, chops over the years. Chops is a funny term. Um, like a lot of terms that are now in American vernacular, like cool and like uh, jamming and uh, 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 terminology for uh, slang, basically. You you wouldn't be so surprised, but a lot of people might. No, because like in comedy, uh, in, in, no. yeah, because in so comedy, from, if, if, we, I, if we say in comedy, right. if someone's good, well, they got the chops. Exactly. So a lot of these terms started out in uh, the jazz world, uh, black music, the big band era, stuff like that. And chops was one of those terms. Chops is really an informal name for technique. And technique... Uh, in classical music, technique means a lot of things. But in jazz, it means the ability to play accurately, fast, and smooth, and with a lot of dexterity. So when you have chops, it means, you know, you can basically play your ass off, pardon the expression. You can play fast, you can, you can play with speed, you can play with power, you can play with agility. And it's a flattering term. So some people, you know, started to call me chops, based on the fact that I was kind of a speedy player. And uh, I've never turned away that because that's a compliment wrapped in a nickname. So that kind of turned into Johnny Chops. Hey, Johnny Chops, what's happening? So I, a lot of people call me either Johnny Chops or just Chops. And uh, I love that. How could I not love it? See, that's a killer, that's a killer nickname, and you're right. Someone from not in the entertainment world, because it's so funny, and you're right, how there is different slangs like we also you know when, when I don't really do comedy anymore but when I did comedy if someone wasn't a comedian or if they're not into the entertainment world we'd call them civilians you know and, and chops was always a word that it's always like yeah that dude's got chops it's a compliment but people who aren't in the entertainment area probably are like what what what, 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 means, what does chops mean <laughs> yeah yeah exactly Exactly. Now, now, how do so we're you, we're in that uh, that arcane? We have that kind of arcane knowledge of, of the source of the, the slang words, which is very cool. All those words, hip. Uh, on the other day, I saw a car commercial, and and the narrator, thinking he's the coolest guy on earth, says, used this phrase "chump change," and that's something that I guess. America discovered that phrase recently, and it came into wide use. But I, I used to hear musicians use that, like, in the 70s. And they'd be like, oh, man, the gig paid chump change. And, like, nobody else, if you didn't know if you didn't know that slang, you wouldn't know what the hell they were talking about, you know? And, right. Uh, <laughs> uh, and that, it's now like, it's like teenage girls are using... 70 and 80 year old slang that musicians used in 1937 and it's like still on the cutting edge of uh, slang vernacular you know it's really quite funny well because jazz musicians are cool we know that they're always hip they're hip cats man that's the way it was so now <laughs> hey man com comedians are extra cool you know I consider comedians to be a parallel art form to jazz. You know, you look at comics like Richard Pryor, Lenny Bruce, George Carlin, they are so involved in jazz, you know. What, uh, a great comedian just passed away, um, Jack Riley, who was, uh, he played Mr. Carlin on Bob Newhart, and he was on um, Rugrats, 
as Stu Pickles. And he was a funny, funny guy. He was a comedic actor. He had uh, thousands of jazz LPs, and he was a huge jazz piano fan. I think these two performing arts go together, comedy and jazz. A place I used to play a lot, Steve, uh, that you may have played, was the Village Gate. I played there once. The Village Gate was a testing ground, a breeding ground, uh, a place to introduce new acts in, in what? The worlds of jazz and comedy. That's where Woody Allen... All these cats that I'm talking about played there. Woody Allen started to stand up at the Village Gate. Absolutely. And uh, uh, a lot of the heavies, um, it was one of those clubs. So it's like, I feel these these, uh, types of show business are very much linked. You know, um, when you watch Richard Pryor's uh, JoJo Dancer, the the jazz element is there all through it. You know, it's... uh, there's a nexus. It's a wonderful thing. Now these days, well, how did now? Now you play with Les Paul, right? Yeah. Now how did that happen? Oh, this is great. You, you'll like this too. You may have heard, I'm sure you have, of the Pizzarelli family, which is a family of musicians that are quite famous. Bucky Pizzarelli is a world-renowned guitarist and a contemporary of Les Paul. Bucky Pizzarelli got famous playing with Benny Goodman. So Les Paul, he decided he wanted to bring piano back into his trio. He hadn't had a piano in his trio since the early 50s. And he wanted to get back to the type of challenging, fast-paced arrangement playing that he had been doing in the 40s and 50s. So he called his friend Bucky Pizzarelli and he said, Bucky, I want to bring a piano player back into the group. Can you recommend anybody? He said, yeah, try John Coliani. I think he'll fit in great. It's like, oh, you know, I don't know if I know him or not. So I get the call. Uh, Pizzarelli's uh, bass player friend, Jerry Bruno, he called me and said, hey, Chops, get your get your butt over to the Iridium. Uh, Les Paul wants you to try out for his band. Bucky recommend you. So once again, I'm like, wow. Right. So I, I, got, I wore a, a sharp suit. I went there. I get there on stage. They're all in shirt sleeves. Les Paul was very informal on stage in later years. But he said, okay, welcome. Sit down. He featured me. I played, got the gig immediately. And uh, it was a riot. I mean, every great musician you can think of, especially from the world of rock and roll, would come to see us and pay homage to Les Paul because he had a lot to do with the development of the electric guitar. So we would have... Everybody from McCartney to Steve Miller to uh, Jeff Beck to you name it. You know, old names, new names, jazz people, showbiz people, comedians. We had a lot of, we had this guy called Jackie the Joke Man Martling. Yeah. He's almost uh, uh, a regular part of our gig for a while. He, we'd let him come up and do 10 or 20 minutes uh, every week with us, and he was hilarious. And then we'd have, uh, um, just untold, you know, movie stars, everybody. It was the hottest ticket in town, Steve, and it was on a Monday night. This 90-year-old man is up on stage playing guitar with his trio, and there would be a block, mostly of young people, a line going a block or more to get in. We had to turn people away, and two shows filled every Monday. And then we would hit the road sometimes. We played at Carnegie Hall. We did, we did the, uh, the jazz festival at Carnegie Hall once, which uh, the Newport Jazz Festival, JBC Jazz Festival. And on that gig, we had, uh, uh, like, every... On, on the same stage, we had Stanley Jordan, we had Steve Miller, we, we had... Uh, 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 I'm not thinking of the names now, but all, all these big names from uh, rock and roll and, and uh, pop music... So it was like this all the time, you know, one, one after another. Uh, in, in amazing. Uh, Steve Lukather, Neil Schoen, uh, you know, the guys from uh, Journey and, and all these bands, and uh, the guys from uh, Led Zeppelin, for example. Wow. Robert Plant and Jimmy Page used to come hang out at our gig. Who's the guy with the, the light, the, the long, Edgar Winter. Okay. Edgar Winter, he was on that gig at Carnegie Hall. Uh, the trucks. Uh, Derek Trucks from uh, uh, Almond Brothers, you know, uh, <laughs> on and on and on, you know, it's like this litany of celebrities, Joe Satriani, 
from from all different worlds of that. And then we'd have great jazz guitarists coming to sit in with us too. Uh, so it was that was very exciting. And then beyond that, Les Paul was an ingenious musician. We had these wonderfully intricate, very much in common with Mel Torme in some ways, arrangements for his trio that were quite challenging to play. And he was very generous with his stage time. And Les Paul was not only a talented musician, but he was like a comedian himself. He could tell jokes and rap with the best of them. He could have you in stitches. He was the funniest guy. It was an amazing gig. And uh, I stayed with him until his death in 2009. And he uh, even carried on a legacy gig in his name after that for some time. Uh, so, um, yeah. What can I say? But how did I get it? I got it through Bucky Pizzarelli. Yes, we only have a few minutes left. Um, how do now? How can people find your music? What's the best way? Right. Okay. Uh, right now, I'm signing with a label. Uh, I'll spell it out and pronounce it for you. It's called Patuxent. P A T. P is in Patterson. P A T U X E N T. Patuxent Music. It's a Washington D.C. label. Um, and they have three of my latest releases out. Uh, other than that, you can find me on Amazon or uh, YouTube. You can see loads of clips of me playing live gigs with loads of different performers. Um, pretty much just put my name in the bar, you know, and, and click. And all kinds of pictures and videos and everything will come up. You know, just do a Google search of John Coliani. Uh, you'll pretty much see albums for sale from... Concord Records, Patuxent Records, uh, things they did with Lionel Hanson, Les Paul. Uh, so you can't miss. <laughs> and people, you spell his name C O L I A N N I, which you changed. You let, you took an A out of. That's right. How did you know that? I, I do I my research. <laughs> you really do, Steve. You're good. I, I said C O L A I A N N I was the original spelling, and I thought it was slightly too tricky for the marquee so i took that first a out <laughs> with a little regret but i'm glad i did it now now uh on and now do you do you tweet i do tweet but i'm more of a facebook guy but i do tweet uh fairly regularly as well yes at john Coliani. yes okay. john Coliani, exactly you should instagram too are you, yeah. are, you are you instagramming Absolutely. I, I'm up on it, man. I'm the Donald Trump of jazz piano. Because <laughs> you tour all the time, you must get great pictures. Oh, yeah, all the time, man. Uh, if you go on my uh, any of those, Facebook or uh, Twitter or Instagram, you'll see uh, lots of good stuff. And, and as I said, YouTube. Put my name in there. It'll be, I don't know, 200 videos. Stuff gonna, I don't even know is up there. I'm going to check it out. I'm going to check it out. Anyway, I want to th thank you for coming on, John. And uh, it was good to catch up. Yeah, you, you too, Steve. And I didn't realize that we had so much of a, a common background with South Jersey and all that, which is great. So I really, it's a very special interview. Thank you so much. No problem. So people, go follow him, John Cooliani on Twitter. Follow me, at Cooper Talk. That's at Cooper Talk on Twitter. Especially once the pl political stuff comes up, I tweet I tweet funny jokes. I don't tweet anything mean. Some people take offense. I go, screw it. They're, <laughs> they're only a joke. I tweeted something the other day. And the wonderful Tim Stack, who was in Son of the Beach and uh, and was a writer for My Name is Earl, retweeted it. And then some lady was like, I thought, and we're just like, hey, we just thought it was a joke. Both of us were like to the lady. But follow me on Twitter, at Cooper Talk. Go to my website, coopertalk.net. I have 545 episodes up. You can uh, email me, cooper, at coopertalk.net. iTunes, Stitcher, Cooper Talk, one word. Uh, that's where you find me. Words with friends and Instagram on coopertalk1. So go check them out. And also, don't forget my other website, stopthesalt.com. You know, when I had a health problem, I uh, wrote a cookbook, and so you can go to StopTheSalt.com. It's 120 low-sodium recipes. It's cooking for one. You can get it on Amazon. You can get it at Barnes & Noble. But if you get it from me, I make more money, and I'll sign it. And also, if you like the show, if you want to get into podcasting or internet radio, I'm doing coaching now. So go Cooper at CooperTalk.net. I'll tell you how to get the great guests I get, how to record your show, how to do an interview, and uh, we'll work out a good rate. I'll give you some package deals. It's new to me, but I see comedy coaches. I see acting coaches. I go, hey, 
Why can't I coach? I get the big, I'm a no-name, and I've had Ed Asner on my show. So what do you think of that? So anyway, people, follow John Coliani. Follow me at Cooper Talk. Keep listening. Next week, we'll have Lisa Loeb, the, the, the talented singer. So I'm Steve Cooper. My name is Hip is my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next week.